Section five of Mind Amongst the Spindles, edited by Charles Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The Village Pastors. The old village pastor of New England was a man having authority. His deacons were under him, and not, as is now often the case, his tyrannical rulers, and whenever his parishioners met him, they doffed their hats, and said, Your reverence. Whatever passed his lips was both law and gospel, and when too old and infirm to minister to his charge, he was not turned away, like an old worn-out beast, to die of hunger, or gather up, with failing strength, the coarse bit which might eke out a little longer his remaining days, but he was still treated with all the deference, and supported with all the munificence, which was believed due to him whom they regarded as God's vice-regent upon earth. He deemed himself, and was considered by his parishioners, if not infallible, yet something approaching it. Those were indeed the days of glory for New England clergymen. Perhaps I am wrong. The present pastor of New England, with his more humble mien and conciliatory tone, his closer application and untiring activity, may be, in a wider sphere, as truly glorious an object of contemplation. Many are the toils, plans, and enterprises entrusted to him, which in former days were not permitted to interfere with the duties exclusively appertaining to the holy vocation. Yet with added labors, the modern pastor receives neither added honors nor added remuneration. Perhaps it is well. Nay, perhaps it is better. But I am confident that if the old pastor could return, and take a bird's-eye view of the situations of his successors, he would exclaim, How has the glory departed from Israel, and how they have cast down the sons of Levi! I have been led to these reflections by a contemplation of the characters of the first three occupants of the pulpit in my native village. Our old pastor was settled, as all then were, for life. I can remember him but in his declining years, yet even then he was a hale and vigorous old man. Honored and beloved by all his flock, his days passed undisturbed by storms and tempests which have since then so often darkened and disturbed the theological world. The opinions and creeds, handed down by his pilgrim fathers, he carefully cherished neither adding thereto, nor taking therefrom. And he indoctrinated the young in all the mysteries of the true faith, with an undoubting belief in its infallibility. There was much of the patriarch in his look and manner, and this was heightened by the nature of his avocations, in which pastoral labors were mingled with clerical duties. No farm was in better order than that of the parsonage. No fields looked more thriving, no flocks were more profitable than were those of the good clergyman. Indeed, sometimes he almost forgot his spiritual field, in the culture of that which was more earthly. One Saturday afternoon the minister was very busily engaged in haymaking. His good wife had observed that during the week he had been unusually engrossed in temporal affairs, and feared for the well-being of his flock, as she saw that he could not break the earthly spell even upon this last day of the week. She looked, and looked in vain for his return, until, finding him wholly lost to a sense of his higher duties, 
she deemed it her duty to remind him of them. So away she went into the haying field, and when she was in sight of the Reverend Haymaker, she screamed out, Mr. W! Mr. W! What, my dear? shouted Mr. W. in return. Do you intend to feed your people with hay to-morrow? This was a poser, and Mr. W. dropped his rake, and, repairing to his study, spent the rest of the day in the preparation of food more meat for those who looked so trustfully to him for the bread of life. His faithful companion was taken from him, and those who knew of his strong and refined attachment to her said truly, when they prophesied, that he would never marry again. She left one son, their only child, a boy of noble feelings and superior intellect, and his father carefully educated him with a fond wish that he would one day succeed him in the sacred office of a minister of God. He hoped indeed that he might even fill the very pulpit which he must at some time vacate, and he prayed that his own life might be spared until this hope had been realized. Endicott W. was also looked upon as their future pastor by many of the good parishioners, and never did a more pure and gentle spirit take upon himself the task of preparing to minister to a people in holy things. He was the beloved of his father, the only child who had ever blessed him, for he had not married till late in life, and the warm affections which had been so tardily bestowed upon one of the gentler sex were now with an unusual fervor languished upon this image of her who was gone. When Endicott W. returned home, having completed his studies at the university, he was requested by our parish to settle as associate pastor with his father, whose failing strength was unequal to the regular discharge of his parochial duties. It was indeed a beautiful sight to see that old man, with bending form and silvery locks, joining in the public ministrations with his young and gifted son, the one with a calm expression of trusting faith, the countenance of the other beaming with that of enthusiasm and hope. Endicott was ambitious. He longed to see his own name placed in the bright constellation of famed theologians, and though he knew that years must be spent in toil for the attainment of that object, he was willing that they should be thus devoted. The midnight lamp constantly witnessed the devotions of Endicott W. at the Shrine of Science, and the wasting form and faded cheek told what would be the fate of the infatuated worshipper. It was long before our young pastor, his aged father, and the idolizing people, who were so proud of his talents, and such admirers of his virtues, it was long ere these could be made to believe he was dying. But Endicott W. departed from life, as a bright cloud fades away in a noonday sky. For his calm exit, was surrounded by all which makes a deathbed glorious. His aged father said, The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he went again before his flock, and endeavored to reconcile them to their loss, and dispense again the comforts and blessings of the gospel, trusting that his strength would still be spared, until one, who was even then preparing, should be ready to take his place. Shall I tell you now of my own home? It was a rude farmhouse, almost embowered by ancient trees, which covered the sloping hillside on which it was situated, and it looked like an old pilgrim who had crawled into the thicket to rest his limbs and hide his poverty. My parents were poor, toiling, careworn beings, 
and in a hard struggle for the comforts of this life had almost forgotten to prepare for that which is to come. It is true, the outward ordinances of religion were never neglected, but the spirit, the feeling, the interest, in short all that is truly deserving the name of piety, was wanting. My father toiled through the burning heat of summer and the biting frost of winter, for his loved ones, and my mother also labored, from the first dawn of day till a late hour at night in behalf of her family. She was true to her duties as wife and mother, but it was from no higher motive than the instincts which prompt the fowls of the air to cherish their brood, and though she perhaps did not believe that labor was the end of life, still her conduct would have given birth to that supposition. I had been for some time the youngest of the family, when a little brother was born. He was warmly welcomed by us, though we had long believed the family circle complete. We were not then aware at how dear a price the little stranger was to be purchased. From the moment of his birth, my mother never knew an hour of perfect health. She had previously injured her constitution by unmitigated toil, and now were the effects to be more sensibly felt. She lived very many years, but it was the life of an invalid. Reader, did you ever hear of the Thirty Years' Consumption, a disease at present unknown in New England, for that scourge of our climate will now complete in a few months the destruction which it took years of desperate struggle to perform upon the constitutions of our more hardy ancestors? My mother was in such a consumption, that disorder which comes upon its victim like the aurorian flashes in an arctic sky, now vivid in its pure loveliness, and then shrouded in a sombre gloom. Now we hoped, nay, almost believed, she was to be again quite well, and anon we watched around the bed from which we feared she would never arise. It was strange to us, who had always seen her so unremittingly in her toilsome labors, and so careless in her exposure to the elements, to watch around her now, to shield her from the lightest breeze or the slightest dampness of the air, to guard her from all intrusion and relieve her from all care to be always reserving for her the warmest place by the fireside, and preparing the choicest bit of food, to be ever ready to pillow her head and bathe her brow, in short, to be never unconscious of the presence of disease. Our steps grew softer, and our voices lower, and the stillness of our manners had its influence upon our minds. The hush was upon our spirits, and there can surely be nothing so effectual in carrying the soul before its Maker as disease, and it may truly be said to every one who enters the chamber of sickness, the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. My little brother was to us an angel sent from heaven. He possessed a far more delicate frame and lofty intellect than any other member of the family, and his high, pale brow and brilliant eyes were deemed sure tokens of uncommon genius. My mother herself watched with pleasure these indications of talent, although the time had been when a predilection for literary pursuits would have been thought inconsistent with the common duties which we were all born to fulfill. We had always respected the learned and talented, but it was with a feeling akin to the veneration we felt for the inhabitants of the spiritual world. They were far above us, and we were content to bow in reverence. Our thoughts had been restricted to the narrow circle of everyday duties, and our highest aspirations were to be admitted at length as spectators 
to the glory of a material heaven, where the streets of gold and thrones of ivory formed the magnificence of the place. It was different now. With a nearer view of that better world, to which my mother had received her summons, came also more elevated spiritual and blissful views of its glory and perfection. It was another heaven, for she was another being, and she would have been willing at any moment to have resigned the existence which she held by so frail a tenure, had it not been for the sweet child which seemed to have been sent from that brighter world to hasten and prepare her for departure. Our pastor was now a constant visitant. Hitherto he had found but little to invite him to our humble habitation. He had been received with awe and constraint, and the topics upon which he loved to dwell touched no chord in the hearts of those whom he addressed. But now my mother was anxious to pour into his ears all the new-felt sentiments and emotions with which her heart was filled. She wished to share his sympathy and receive his instructions, for she felt painfully conscious of her extreme ignorance. It was our pastor who first noticed in my little brother the indications of mental superiority, and we felt then as though the magical powers of some favored order of beings had been transferred to one in our home circle. And we loved the little Winthrop, for his father had named him after the old governor, with a stronger and holier love than we had previously felt for each other. And in these new feelings, how much was there of happiness? Though there was now less health, and of course less wealth, in our home, yet there was also more pure joy. I have sometimes been out upon the barren hillside, and thought that there was no pleasure in standing on a spot so desolate. I have again been in the same bare place, and there was a balmy odor in the delicious air, which made it bliss but to inhale the fragrance. Some spicy herb had carpeted the ground, and though too lowly and simple to attract the eye, yet the charm it threw around the scene was not less entrancing because so viewless and unobtrusive. Such was the spell shed around our lowly home by the presence of religion. It was with us the exhalation from lowly plants, and the pure fragrance went up the more freely because they had been bruised. In our sickness and poverty we had joy in the present, and bright hopes for the future. It was early decided that Winthrop should be a scholar. Our pastor said it must be so, and Endicott, who was but a few years older, assisted him in his studies. They were very much together, and excepting in their own families, had no other companion. But when my brother returned from the pastor's study with a face radiant with the glow of newly acquired knowledge, and a heart overflowing in its desire to impart to others, he usually went to his pale, emaciated mother to give vent to his sensations of joy, and came to me to bestow the boon of knowledge. I was the nearest in age. I had assisted to rear his infancy and had been his constant companion in childhood, and now our intercourse was to be continued and strengthened, amidst higher purposes and loftier feelings. I was the depository of all his hopes and fears, the sharer of all his plans for the future, and his aim was then to follow in the footsteps of Endicott W. If he could only be as good, as kind and learned, he should think himself one of the best of mankind." When Endicott became our pastor, my brother was ready to enter college, with the determination to consecrate himself to the same high calling. It seemed hardly like reality to us, 
that one of our own poor household was to be an educated man. We felt lifted up, not with pride, for the feeling which elevated us was too pure for that. But we esteemed ourselves better than we had ever been before, and strove to be more worthy of the high gift which had been bestowed upon us. When my brother left home, it was with the knowledge that self-denial was to be practiced, for his sake, by those who remained. But he also knew that it was to be willingly, nay, joyously, performed. Still, he did not know all. Even things which hitheretofore, in our poverty, we had deemed essential to comfort, were now resigned. We did not even permit my mother to know how differently the table was spread for her than for our own frugal repast. Neither was she aware how late and painfully I toiled to prevent the hire of additional service upon our little farm. The joy in the secret depths of my heart was its own reward, and never yet have I regretted an effort or a sacrifice made then. It was a discipline like the refiner's fire, and but for my brother I should never have been even as, with all my imperfections, I trust I am now. My brother returned from college, as the bright sun of Endicott W.'s brief career was low in a western sky. He had intended to study with him for the same vocation, and with him he did prepare. Oh, there could have been no more fitting place to imbue the mind with that wisdom which cometh from above than the sick-room at our pastor's. The chamber where the good man meets his fate is privileged beyond the common walks of life and Endicott's was like the shelter of some bright spirit from the other world, who, for the sake of those about him, was delaying for a while his return to the home above. My brother was with him in his last hours, and received as a dying bequest the charge of his people. The parish also were anxious that he should be Endicott's successor, and in the space requested for farther preparation, our old pastor returned to his pulpit but he had overrated his own powers, and besides, he was growing blind. There were indeed those who said that, notwithstanding his calmness in the presence of others, he had in secret wept his sight away, and that while a glimmer of it remained, the curtain of his window, which overlooked the graveyard, had never been drawn. He ceased his labors, but a temporary substitute was easily found, for, as old Deacon S. remarked, there are many ministers now, who are glad to go out to day's labor. My mother had prayed that strength might be imparted to her feeble frame, to retain its rejoicing inhabitant until she could see her son a more active laborer in the Lord's vineyard. And then, said she, I can depart in peace. For a year she had hoped the time would come, but dared not hope to see it. But life was graciously spared, and the day which was to see him set apart as peculiarly a servant of God, dawned upon her in better health than she had known for years. Perhaps it was the glad spirit which imparted its renewing glow to the warm body, but she went with us that day to the service of ordination. The old church was thronged, and as the expression of thankfulness went up from the preacher's lips, that one so worthy was then to be dedicated to his service, my own heart was subdued by the solemn joy that he was one of us. My own soul was poured out in all the exercises, but when the charge was given, there was also an awe upon all the rest. Our aged pastor had been led into his pulpit that he might perform this ceremony, 
and when he arose with his silvery locks, thinned even since he stood there last, and raised his sightless eyes to heaven, I freely wept. He was in that pulpit where he had stood so many years, to warn, to guide, and to console, and probably each familiar face was then presented to his imagination. He was where his dear departed son had exercised the ministerial functions, and the same part of the service which he had performed at his ordination he was to enact again for his successor. The blind old man raised his trembling hand, and laid it upon the head of the young candidate, and as the memories of the past came rushing over him, he burst forth in a strain of heart-stirring eloquence. There was not a tearless eye in the vast congregation, and the remembrance of that hour had doubtless a hallowing influence upon the young pastor's life. My brother was settled for five years, and as we departed from the church I heard Deacon S. exclaim, in his bitterness against modern degeneracy in spiritual things, that the old pastor was settled for life. So is the new one, said a low voice in reply, and for the first time the idea was presented to my mind that Winthrop was to be, like Endicott W., one of the early called. But the impression departed in my constant intercourse with him in his home, for our lowly dwelling was still the abode of the new pastor. He would never remove from it while his mother lived, and an apartment was prepared for him adjoining hers. They were pleasant rooms, for during the past few years he had done much to beautify the place, and the shrubs which he had planted were already at their growth. The thick vines also, which had struggled over the building, were now gracefully twined around the windows, and some of the old trees cut down, that we might be allowed a prospect. Still all that could conduce to beauty was retained, and I have often thought how easily and cheaply the votary of true taste can enjoy its pleasures. Winthrop was now so constantly active and cheerful that I could not think of death as connected with him. But I knew that he was feeble, and watched and cherished him, as I had done when he was but a little child. Though in these respects his guardian, in others I was his pupil. I sat before him, as Mary did at the Messiah's feet, and gladly received his instructions. My heart went out with him in all the various functions of his calling. I often went with him to the bedside of the sick, and to the habitations of the wretched. None knew better than he did how to still the throbbings of the wrung heart, and administer consolation. I was present also, when, for the first time, he sprinkled an infant's brow with the waters of consecration, and when he had blessed the babe, he also prayed that we might all become even as that little child. I was with him, too, when for the first time he joined in holy bands those whom none but God should ever put asunder, and if the remembrance of the fervent petition which went up for them has dwelt as vividly in their hearts as it has in mine, that prayer must have had a holy influence upon their lives. I have said that I remember his first baptism and wedding, but none who were present will forget his first funeral. It was our mother's. She had lived so much beyond our expectations, and been so graciously permitted to witness the fulfillment of her dearest hope, that when at length the spirit winged its flight, we all joined in the thanksgiving which went up from the lips of her latest born, that she had been spared so long. It was a beautiful Sabbath, that day appointed for her funeral. But in the morning a messenger came to tell us that the clergyman whom we expected was suddenly taken ill. What could be done? Our old pastor was then confined to his bed, 
and on this day all else were engaged. I will perform the services myself, said Winthrop. I shall even be happy to do it. Nay, said I, you are feeble, and already spent with study and watching. It must not be so. Do not attempt to dissuade me, sister, he replied. There will be many to witness the internment of her who was hovered upon the brink of the grave so long, and has not almost every incident of her life, from my very birth, been a text from which important lessons may be drawn. And then, fixing his large mild eyes full upon me, as though he would utter a truth which duty forbade him longer to suppress, he added, I dare not misimprove this opportunity. This first death, in my parish, may also be the last. Nay, weep not, my sister, because I may go next. The time at best is short, and I must work while the day lasts. I did not answer. My heart was full, and I turned away. That day my brother ascended his pulpit to conduct the funeral services, and in them he did make of her life a lesson to all present. But when he addressed himself particularly to the young, the middle-aged, and the old, his eyes kindled and his cheeks glowed, as he varied the subject to present the King of Terrors in a different light to each. Then he turned to the mourners. And who were they? His own aged father, the companion for many years of her who was before them in her shroud, his own brothers and sisters, and the little ones of the third generation, whose childish memories had not even yet forgotten her dying blessing. He essayed to speak, but in vain. The flush faded from his cheek till he was deadly pale. Again he attempted to address us, and again in vain. He raised his hand, and buried his face in the folds of his white handkerchief. I also covered my eyes, and there was a deep stillness throughout the assembly. At that moment I thought more of the living than of the dead. And then there was a rush among the great congregation, like the sudden bursting forth of a mighty torrent. I raised my eyes, but could see no one in the pulpit. The next instant it was filled. I also pressed forward, and, unimpeded, ascended the steps, for all stood back that I might pass. I reached him as he lay upon the seat where he had fallen, and the handkerchief, which was still pressed to his lips, was wet with blood. They bore him down and through the aisle, and when he passed the coffin, he raised his head and gazed for a moment upon that calm, pale face. Then casting upon all around a farewell glance, he sunk gently back and closed his eyes. A few evenings after, I was sitting by his bedside. The bright glow of a setting sun penetrated the white curtains of his windows, and fell with softened luster upon his face. The shadows of the contiguous foliage were dancing upon the curtains, the floor, and the snowy drapery of his bed. And as he looked faintly up, he murmured, It is a beautiful world, but the other is glorious, and my mother is there, and Endicott. See, they are beckoning to me, and smiling joyfully. Mother, dear mother, and Endicott, I am coming. His voice and looks expressed such conviction of the reality of what he saw, that I also looked up to see these beautiful spirits. My glance of disappointment recalled him, 
and he smiled as he said, I think it was a dream, but it will be a reality soon. Do not go, said he, as I arose to call for others. Do not fear, sister. The bands are very loose, and the spirit will go gently, and perhaps even before you could return. I reseated myself, and pressing his wasted hand in mine, I watched. As through his breast the wave of life heaved gently to and fro. A few moments more, and I was alone with the dead. We buried Winthrop by the side of Endicott W., and the old pastor was soon laid beside them. Years have passed since then, and I still love to visit those three graves. But other feelings mingle with those which once possessed my soul. I hear those whose high vocation was once deemed a sure guarantee for their purity, either basely calumniated or terribly condemned. Their morality is questioned, their sincerity doubted, their usefulness denied, and their pretensions scoffed at. It may be that unholy hands are sometimes laid upon the ark, and that change of times forbids the extensive usefulness as was in the power of the clergymen of New England in former days. But when there comes a muttering cry of, Down with the priesthood, and a denial of the good which they have effected, my soul repels the insinuation, as though it were blasphemy. I think of the first three pastors of our village, and I reverence the ministerial office and its labors. If I but remember only that such as these have lived and died. Susanna End of section 5